1: have accessed Entry810.ps7825. Certificate number 48504. The Mother Sauces. Two or three tablespoons of a reduced tomato sauce, it becomes a sauce charron. If you do it with the orange juice, it becomes a sauce maltese, and so forth.
0: You like sauce.
1: Mm. It's one of my favorite things. It's one of my favorite things, too. I had uh, had a friend of a friend who... um, they worked together at some kind of tech place, and he came into work one day. He was so excited because his wife had made dinner, and uh, she had made one of his favorite things, which was sauces. He was like, "I just love sauces." Yeah, he had had food without sauces, and he had had food with sauces. Huh? And the latter was better. It I, added savor to his life. Do you not agree? Oh man, nothing like a sauce. I want sauce. On anything. It must be something about the fact that it's a different phase of matter. You're eating a solid food, but what if there was like a delicious liquid food with it? Think what would happen in your mouth then. I have always uh,
0: wondered slash believed because it's a theory of mine. So I believe it. Um, And this may be, let's, let's just put this in here. Trigger alert if you're eating right now maybe pause, but it has always occurred to me that a lot of foods are decorative facsimiles of what would have been kind of raw predator experiences. We would have had as animal murderers, you know, that there is a kind of blood and viscera approximation, any kind of stew is basically what you would have experienced if you were eating the entrails of a creature. Pasta is entrails. Pasta is, you know, with blood included. If you put some some a nice sauce on it. All sauce would be somewhat the experience you would have in eating either raw meat or or
1: killed things. Well isn't taste mediated a lot by moisture? Like doesn't right. like dry food it seems to just Tingle the the nose and the taste buds less. Right about think about, like, a, like think about a washing bear. It can't really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't taste a thing unless it's been dipped in a river. Isn't it the same for us? Must be.
0: Well, yeah, because it gets you know it uh, it penetrates all the the little
1: cracks and crevices of your taste buds. Right. Otherwise, you just got to hope the one part of your tongue that's touching the piece of bread wants that. So your house has a lot of cooking happening. My wife's an enthusiastic amateur, a a cooking enthusiast. Did you know about her her club? Like once a week or once once a month, she meets up with some friends, and And they're doing
0: all the nations of the world. They're doing all
1: the nations of the world in order. They did Brunei last week.
0: Oh, so they're out. They 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 bumped through Andorra, Austria, and now they're at Brunei.
1: They've learned they're they're doing an awful lot of Caribbean nations. Maybe maybe uh, disproportionate to the amount of Caribbean food they want to eat. Yeah. But it's delicious. Don't get I mean, me but wrong. It,
0: but, it, but it resembles itself, right? From one Caribbean yeah, nation exactly. to Yeah, exactly. It's not
1: like the Barbados food was that different than the Antiguan food. Right. It just, uh, it's more of the same to them.
0: Well, maybe uh, there aren't a lot of Caribbean nations that have names that start with U or even
1: R. I haven't really looked at the alphabetical trend, because they're going in alphabetical order, to see if that changes. You know, is there, like there going to be a European phase of their journey where, where those nations cluster?
0: I mean, there are islands in the Caribbean that are actually called the ABC Islands,
1: None are independent
0: and therefore will not make this project. Oh, however. I see. That's all Dutch food.
1: Yeah, Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. I'm sure it's delicious, but it's um, they're only doing independent nations. No, it's all plantains, just like everything. Which is a bummer, because think of a country with great food, Thailand or Italy or something. You get that once. Yeah. But um, I hope you like West African food, because you're getting that 26 times. Have you played the game?
0: I ask, have you? But surely you have. Uh, flight or invisibility?
1: 100%
0: flight. What? That's the crazy answer. No, it's the not pervert answer. No, invisibility is not just for perverts. Invincibil- it's also
1: for bank robbers. No, invisibility <laughs> is because you saw Porky's too. No, no, right thinking no. people would always choose flight because that's where the human spirit soars.
0: No, flight. You're just you're just, you'd get so bored of it. You'd fly around for a while. You'd be like da 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 da, and then and then what? You're gonna perch in the top of a tree and wait for a mouse to run? You're gonna run fly by? over
1: different things. Think of some guy who buys a drone. He's interested in that for at least three weeks. <laughs> Whereas invisibility, you're like, oh, you can
0: experience the whole breadth of human experience without, without actually getting your skin in the game. How are you bringing this back to cuisine? Oh well, so if you had to choose
1: one kind of food, Mexican. Wow, Mexican. Not even close. No I'm ha- kidding. I, I had the answer already. Mexican.
0: Yeah, but Mexican food only has four ingredients. That's not true. It's got corn. It's got beans. It's got rice, and it has meat. And parsley, maybe. <laughs> it's not <laughs> cilantro, it's not parsley. <laughs> Whatever, I always get those two mixed up.
1: You're leaving aside the avocado and the dairy stuff, but also the, mm. the complicated uh, spice possibilities. You it's, it's to, not unlike Indian food in that you've got your moles, you've got your your spicy sauces. Moles are your, uneatable. <gasps> <gasps> I, I, What's your nation? Now that you've now that you've impugned the people of Latin America, Vietnam. Yeah, I, I mean Vietnam's top five.
0: Come sure. on, Vietnamese food has just got it's got it all. Plus vegetables, which Mexican food
1: conveniently eliminates. Thai food might be yeah. just like m- 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 just mainlining Vietnamese food. It's like the sweet stuff is sweeter, the salty stuff is saltier, yeah. the crunchy nuts are crunchier. True. That's like the for, curries.
0: The curries all day. The curries. But but Vietnamese food has the burned meat on top of raw vegetables that my body craves.
1: Yeah, you're paleo. Your cave, your, your caveman ancestors wanted two things: burned meat over fire and a nice salad bar. There's almost no dairy
0: in Vietnamese food.
1: I think that is actually a issue for me. That uh-huh. is that is one reason why, despite having grown up in Asia and loving all those cuisines so much, like I'm such a. Midwestern dairy-loving white kid Yeah, that I'm like, I'm looking where's around the, the table, where's the cheese at? Where's the cheese? I, I've often said that I could probably go vegetarian if I could have still have dairy, and, yeah. it, and it would not be a problem. The problem is dairy is actually, the carbon footprint is worse than most meats. Really? It's better than beef, but it's way worse than pork or chicken. Can you make do with coconut milk? You can't, because you don't like coconut well, cheese. Think, <laughs> well, nobody wants cashew cheese on their pizza. Nope. Nobody wants coconut milk ice cream. Nope, I don't want it in my coffee. Even it's fine. There are many things that are good with coconut milk. I had I was visiting some LA friends who turned out to be a little bit woo woo and got their favorite rice bowls from their favorite weird quinoa and kale.
0: How unexpected!
1: Yeah, what a What a, it's, it turned out <laughs> to live in the city of Laguna Beach, you have to become a a '90s stand up comedy idea of what uh, California is like. Right. Um, but they were like, and you have to try this dessert. We already drank ours. They're so good. And it was a coconut shake, a non-dairy coconut shake. And I have to admit it was pretty good. Coconut milk in curry is one of the best things. I never loved curry cause I always had like East Asian kind of Japanese curries. And it was oh. not until I had like a Thai coconut curry that I was like, this is where it's at. Yeah. Pretty jamming.
0: My daughter played that game with me. I said, what, "What was the food that you would eat if you could, if you could only pick one thing?" And she said, "Beef." <laughs> and I was like, "No, no, no. I mean like national nationality of food." And she was like, "No, beef." And I realized what a what a trick answer to that question because you're just looking for beef. <laughs> In various forms. Many cultures
1: have have perfected ways to eat beef. Yeah, and I was like, beef, beef. Tonight, beef Wellington. Tomorrow, beef rendang. day after that, beef fajitas. But you're never going to get Indian food. It's true. It's the subcontinent you miss. Yeah. Let me just hasten to say that like, I would not have said Mexican until Portland brought us the taco truck. You know, growing up, I thought of Mexican as the... As the worst kind of mom got home late from the PTA meeting, kind of Tex Mex, Tex Mex, and you know, cheese bomb, and there's lots of good Tex Mex food, but you know just the crunchy shells with the ground beef that tastes like cumin in it. And uh, but didn't you go through
0: a, a mission burrito phase, or did you not do your? I San did Francisco in my time? 30s. Yeah. Like
1: I was, I was late arriving to good Mexican and Mexican fusion food. But the taco truck to 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 credit Portland with the taco truck,
0: I. I I rebel. It's not
1: just bad; it's problematic. Ugh. I'm crediting white people. It's terrible with tacos. It's El Riconcito
0: here in Burien. Uh, oh, I go there all the time, and it's um, it's and you know what you'll find in those meals. El Riconcito, the, the little corner. It um, it has there's very little cheese in yeah. in that stuff. That's no, California's edition. But I feel like that. I feel like the taco, the taco you're describing. Uh, if, it, if it can be said to have come through white people, it came through the uh, Al Pastor phase of, or the Al Pastor craze of Austin, Texas.
1: Yeah, it was, it, when I say Portland, it's 100% Austin to Portland yeah. pipeline. You are absolutely right. The old Austin to Portland pipeline. But when I was a kid, all we had was what was on the Taco Bell menu. Yeah. All we had was ground hamburger with one of those spice packets in it and maybe those crunchy Ortega Shells, if we could talk mom into buying them.
0: So in Anchorage growing up, there were a lot of Texans and Oklahomans because of the oil. Mm. And so the Mexican restaurant was a massive major feature of Alaskan society. Every neighborhood had its own distinctive Mexican place that was your local spot that you were loyal to. And was it kind of a nice sit-down place? Yep. Yeah. And there was a bar where everybody was rowdy and drunk, and in you know margarita Monday, yeah, and you could hear them yelling. They were all drinking duck farts and margaritas in there and, and yelling at each other. But the food was enormous platter
1: covered with
0: American style food covered with cheese, Malted covered with cheese sauce on the top,
1: and then famously the sides, which are just the things in your main on the side. Here's a pile of lettuce. Here's a pile of tomatoes. Here's a pile of rice. Here's yeah, a pile that was of your cheese. salad, right?
0: And it and it was amazing how uh, how loyal people were to their local Mexican restaurant because it all tasted exactly the same across the city. There was no...
1: But you know that's not true of good Mexican food, right? The carnitas will not taste like the chicken mole, will not taste like the pork verde, will not taste like the al pastor.
0: Well, because I live in Seattle in the modern day, and especially that I live in South Seattle, like I have 11 food tricks and seven Mexican restaurants, but I'll have to say, Azteca... If you're ordering takeout Mexican food, Azteca is the way to go. I'm going to stand I'm going to stand my ground for Azteca. I mean, maybe there's a mole on that menu, but I don't it's on I've, some I've never been page. and I've
1: actually kind of sneered at my friends who used to go once a week.
0: I know that's the thing, like everybody's like too good for Azteca, but I'm telling you, the
1: uh the chili verde there, very good. My top five would just be right down the plate what every American thinks. It would just be Mexico, Italy, Thailand, Vietnam, maybe Japan, maybe what did I leave out?
0: Russian? No. Ethiopian? Hard, hard pass. Do you ever go to Ethiopian food? I have an
1: issue where I don't like sour foods, which oh. means sourdough-based cuisines like you know the, Inger- the Ethiopian Ingerber. food. I, I just have to order more carefully.
0: So mm-hmm. if you go to an Ethiopian restaurant in Seattle, you can often get the sampler platter, which is seriously a tray the size of a manhole cover. And it's all injero bread underneath and then little globs of both the meat and vegetarian selections all the way around. And you eat it communally. Do they not touch so you can- They don't touch. You can pick your part of the map. And then you get your own injero <laughs> bread To then take little bites out of the little piles, and it's a very communal, exciting kind of restaurant adventure, and I just – I love that food so much, but all the – all my old Ethiopian places have all closed for some reason – You know, you can't get rid of a pho restaurant in this town. Every time there's a pho restaurant, if it drops a bit of its blood on the ground, there's seven new pho restaurants.
1: Sometimes, if something were to happen, if a truck were to crash into it, it would actually split into two pho restaurants, like a cell dividing. But somehow the Ethiopian
0: places, well, there's, you know, there's little Addis Ababa down there in. Sure. Whatever Twelfth Avenue, but this is a great episode so far for people who live in Seattle, specifically on Capitol Hill. Not unlike
1: Tuesday's show, where we were very detailed about the topography of Linwood and Everett. Right. That's that's also a huge hit. I don't know what's going
0: on, but we've we're feeling very Seattle-centric. It's spring now, and it feels like alive here more.
1: Honestly, every um, all cuisines actually all these foreign ones pale beside Southern American soul cooking. Which would be a melange of African and European and, to some degree, New World Caribbean And we have influence. a
0: few of those places, but but fewer than we might. There, 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 there are yeah. Southern Soul kitchens dotted around the town. But, you know, we have great seafood here. We hardly ever talk about it. But I think specifically what I want to talk about is uh, you and I have both recently become um, at least, uh, well, confirmed investors in a local French restaurant. <laughs>
1: That's true. <laughs> we did not mention French food, and I, I lo- and I love French bistro food. We have not mentioned French food, although... And they invented it.
0: Arguably, they did invent French food.
1: While, ever, while the British were still sitting in a cave licking a turnip, yeah. the French were just like 90 miles away eating like, like spooning um, bechamel over a Dover sole or something, or yeah. over a, a sole meunier.
0: For 2,000 years... British cuisine was just boil a lamb uh, <laughs> and put Ooh, grass in it. Daddy, I
1: want the eyeball. <laughs>
0: uh, it, yeah. Meanwhile, in France, they were uh, they were
1: putting salted butter on
0: everything, and it's everything's better with salted butter.
1: They were so far ahead of us that as recently as like 1955 to 1960, the definition of good food was a French restaurant because that's where you'd go to some place where something fresh, innovative, and reliably tasty was happening. Like. Every other culture was synonymous with less good food. And what we're describing
0: as we talk about our uh, international food court of favorite foods is a thing that did not exist in the United States until very recently. My mom can, uh, can readily recall the first time she had spaghetti, yeah. the first time she saw a pizza, the first time she understood what a taco
1: was. Looking at the history of sushi is funny. You know, how it, how it just spreads from a, oh, come on, kind of L.A. fad right. to... You can't possibly be eating raw fish. And I remember the first time I had pad thai in 1997.
0: I well, was like, where has this been all
1: my life? Vietnamese food was
0: really only introduced into the U.S. after the Vietnam War. It's a
1: people. Thing, yeah. yeah,
0: during the diaspora. And then Thai food even, yeah, more recently. A lot of these things, sou- Southeast Asian foods, came into the U.S. through Seattle, San Francisco, and L.A.,
1: For obvious reasons. Sorry, Canada. Vancouver, too.
0: Yeah, and Vancouver has uh, the best best Chinese Chinese food. food. (laughs) (laughs) Better than China. No question. Uh, New York, of course, always had a vibrant uh, food culture, but I couldn't get Mexican food in New York as recently as 2001.
1: (laughs) You couldn't find it. You know what's funny? I was walking around a European capital and seeing the taco places. That's crazy. Because you used to do a double take. You're like, wait, I thought I was in Manchester slash Bratislava. Why is there a... Uh, uh, Senor cactuses.
0: I remember in 1995 looking for a corn chip in all of Western Europe and couldn't find it anywhere. I just want a maize chip. You call it maize. No, my people call it maize, (laughs) although my people don't. They call it a Frito. Um, But French cuisine, despite the fact that we didn't mention it and despite the fact that it's surprisingly hard to find now in Seattle and maybe everywhere— it was the definition of cuisine. In fact, cuisine, a French word. The French Literally, word for cooking. Uh,
1: Literally, uh, our word for good food is just like good food that is French. Because yeah. that was all there was. French was the
0: uh the European export. I'm sorry. Did I say French? French was a European export. The language. But also uh French food was was the and this is this is in a world where there was amazing Italian food. Yeah. And uh, and also phenomenal Spanish food, as we'll see must in a minute. Some,
1: must be some racism there, right? Well, of all the cultures making um, making good European food, the French are have fell on the white side of the white line. The most recently or earliest.
0: The story of it has a lot to do with the um, the era of the Habsburgs, the Bourbons, uh, Napoleon. The various wars, but but a lot of the uh, the kind of admixture of royal families, like the inbreeding of of royal families, and then the transition in the uh, between the eighteenth century and the nineteenth century, where there became a bourgeoisie, right? Where where food that had formerly been, right, formerly just,
1: eight people could eat something nice.
0: Yeah, only the uh, you know the idea of there being fresh food and uh local food tasty food really food with taste that wasn't just boiled mutton peasants couldn't get salt some, couldn't, sometimes couldn't get around you know and there was there was no audience for it outside of the very rich and the the beginning of of haute cuisine you know really coincided with the uh, the advent of spas and hotels, mm. um, the advent of you're going
1: to the continent for something classy. That's right,
0: and the kind of you know the spread, uh, the ebb and flow of French culture uh, via Napoleon, becoming a kind of um, you know a widely distributed culture. But then, as the French contracted, as Napoleon. Uh, was defeated and and Splitsville. Um, there was
1: still a thin layer of hollandaise sauce
0: covering much of Europe? There was, but there was also, I mean, throughout the Napoleonic uh, era and the era immediately before, as the French went out, they also brought back. So, courtiers and, you know, the uh, as the royals kind of moved around, they brought their own cooks with them and then cooks, you know, would be in a royal court but would be preparing the food of the of the um, the 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 princess who came from Spain or Italy to marry the king.
1: So it'd be like you'll never guess what the Russians are doing with beets or what the Egyptians are doing with saffron or.
0: And it would take you know, it would take the royal court by storm. Yeah.
1: But as there, you know,
0: as as a bourgeoisie disseminated, or as food disseminated into a new middle class, um, the the. You know, kind of the out of work cooks of the of Louis Cator's sort of found new opportunities cooking for um, cooking for spas and hotels. Middle class. There was there was a lot of talk of French cooking in the 18th century, in the later part of the 18th century. The first um, the first notable book. Cookbook, but but book about French cooking was called the Modern Cook, and it was, pre- and it was by a, a man by the name of Vincent La Chapelle, and he was, he called it the Modern Cook because he was trying to devise a an accessible food, slightly more accessible food. This is food that was that was very decorative, and and ornate meals. You couldn't make it at home. Uh, no. And it would have you know, it, we're talking about multi course meals as events. Um but the modern cook kind of laid the groundwork for the idea that there was a there was a French cuisine, a kind of codified French cuisine.
1: What's the era on this? We're in the 1735, 19- the modern cook. Oh, so it's even before like Briette Savarin or whoever.
0: Yeah, this was uh this was a, a result of You know, Louis XIV was a pretty nice sun king. You know, he was a... Sunny disposition. He was a sunny disposition. Everybody liked him. He, um, there was some suggestion that it was really a a, a writer and a chef by the name of Marie-Antoine Carême, who, uh, who was the first to kind of codify and coalesce French cooking into a book by uh, a book called the art of French cuisine. So there's like a nationalistic uh, pride and fervor behind it too. Well, this was 1833 and, um, Oh, interesting. And so, uh, Karim had been a kind of celebrated chef before the revolution or so he, he began, um, he, he, he started his career as a young boy during the French revolution, kind of turned out by his parents started most of the, the great chefs of the French, you know, of of this story started off from very humble beginnings thrown into an apprenticeship in a chop house or a, you know, some garbage restaurant and showed a great proclivity and became, uh, became sort of, we were given more authority within the kitchen.
1: So it's a rare meritocracy for back then. It's like they say in Ratatouille, like a great chef can come from anywhere.
0: Yep, and and um, and most great chefs weirdly did. There, wa- there weren't food academies yet. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, a, and starting as an apprentice in a butcher shop, um, you know, that was not considered high art. Uh, You're... I mean, think about it, right? There's a restaurant for every... there There is food for everyone, and um, they're they are working-class restaurants. Or they die of hunger. Or they die of hunger. Right? That's right, at a, at a young... Well, they die very young
1: so I without assume, food. So I assume the French Revolution was not a, a golden age of great food. No, but it produced
0: a golden age um, because Napoleon realized that um, part of diplomacy... Although he was not interested particularly in fancy meals,
1: part of diplomacy. Really? No, not really. Why is there such a fancy pastry name for him then? Um, the Napoleon should be one of those grocery store brand sandwich cookies. So,
0: naming uh, naming food after famous people was actually kind of a. It was a fashion in France to do. It's an and, honor for them and it, and for your new dish, right? Yeah, it comes. It comes up. It comes up later, right? It's a way of publicizing your your fame because um after the era where where rich food was only available to the uh the aristocracy, then it became a thing that celebrities popularized. The restaurant or your hotel was a place that the rich and famous went. And that, so
1: that continues into the 20th century, right? You you know, there's a boom time of peach Melba and uh uh oysters Rockefeller, but then it just stops. Nobody today is like Give me some noodles, Drake, or I'll have a JoJo Siwa salad.
0: And it makes me mad. I. It, it seems like there should be a food named after you, For after me in particular. Yeah, what would it be called? The uh, the the oysters Jennings.
1: What would you? Well, do I have to invent it in this scenario, or am I just like the guy at the restaurant who's like, yeah, my special thing, and the chef uh, produces it. Often, often the person will be kind of a rich a hole, and will be like, no, I want marmalade on this, and then that becomes the. That becomes the whatever Carnegie. Um, I used to eat at picoras
0: the old New yeah, York style pizza place on up, uh, on, on Capitol Madison. Hills, and and my pizza that I ordered every time was meatball and jalapenos. And at one point, the waiter said, "We should just name this after you because you're the only one that gets meatball and jalapeno pizza." And I had I briefly was like, oh, "I I don't know how to press this like." Please name it after me. That would be amazing, you know, the Roderick. Uh, but I don't think it had quite enough flair. It was too simple of a pizza, and also I just didn't. If I had been Chris Cornell, it might have been ended up,
1: might have ended up
0: being called the Cornell.
1: I mean, the only off-menu thing I ever order would be um, the Diet Dr Pepper at Le Pichet,
0: <laughs> which will be called a Jennings. The Jennings on Ice. But what Napoleon did was he empowered Talleyrand, his diplomat, and gourmand. Oh, is that right? Talleyrand's a food guy? He was. He was, you know, Talleyrand was the kind of uh, the classic early 19th century diplomat, uh, Europe, you know, pan-European.
1: Sophisticated Renaissance man type. Right.
0: And he, uh, he actually, in 1804, bought a chateau that you would recognize because it's a famous chateau. Called the Chateau de Valenque Valen Valence, Val- hmm. see with a tail. That's
1: a, uh, even if it comes before an A or no. Uh,
0: chateau de Valençay, which is uh, you know kind of the the ultimate classic French chateau. I
1: appreciate your security that I would recognize the chateau.
0: You will when you when you see a picture of it because it figures prominently in um, in the nineteenth century as a salon. And a lot of French diplomacy during that era, hosted by um,
1: hosted by Talleyrand. Liquor, uh, liquor-powered liquor diplomacy.
0: Yeah, it took place in this kind of, um, in this
1: like g- grand ballroom. Beautiful manor. It's the right vibe for European peace.
0: And a lot of the food that was served there was prepared or at least uh, designed by Karim the uh, the 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 young prodigy who had come up out of the steaming kitchens of the revolution and had devised you know uh, prior to this it was a lot of um the the food was super complicated and there was uh, there was still an interest in food as a as a a visual medium and a hilarious kind of like over-the-top table. And Karem was somebody who built structures that y- you would know, structures out of marzipan and sweet – you not sweetbreads, but marzipan and bread and
1: you know he would make so it would look like a cathedral. yeah or it would be Versailles on the or,
0: table covered with frosting. Um, the, the whole sort of food as an enormous spectacle. Um there were in the French style the service was to to have multiple courses but to bring it all out at once cuz then you get the eye popping table groaning under the weight of it. Right, here it is, it's a suckling pig and big
1: desserts and fruit and My idea of high class food at this time is that it's all built around like, you know, very rare ingredients like only the king could have hummingbird brains inside his lark's tongue inside his that kind of thing, yeah. right? And there's a lot. There's a a lot of that. But but even after
0: the so, uh, crazily, like Talleyrand and his um, his style survived the restoration of the monarchy, and maybe it's not crazy. Like he was still very much in that style. So even after Napoleon was deposed, this kind of continued on, and Kerem continued kind of a, and became the celebrity chef that all the Royal families of Europe had to get to come make one of his spectacular meals. He, he, uh, he made food for George the fourth. He was, uh,
1: briefly employed by the czar. Um, this was too early for a celebrity chef to sell out. He can't, you can't just start seeing, he's not like Wolfgang Puck. Like you can't just start seeing, uh, Karem frozen dinners at, uh, at grocery stores. He did sell out in the sense that he worked for the Rothschilds for five years. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he knows which side his bread is buttered on.
0: But he he was the he was the prototype of the chef. Um, he
1: invented the chef's hat. Really? Yes. He just happened to, he just liked that style of hat and everyone was like, well, if he's wearing that. He was like, look at this, a hat that looks Like a bun. And it leaves room for a little rodent to pull at your hair Uh (laughs) and give you instructions. Uh He was the first to suggest,
0: or the first within high cuisine, to say, rather than the French style of service where we bring everything out at once, why don't we adopt what he called the Russian style of service, which was course after course. So they would bring out a course, everybody would ooh and ah. There's more of a
1: narrative arc. Right? Dinner becomes
0: a story. Um, Right, exactly. And you have, and each thing gets its featured moment. You've eaten a five course meal in in France. Sure. Where, yeah, they come out and you go, wow, it's, look at that. I can't possibly be full when I eat this tiny medallion of whatever it is covered with sauce with a little sprig of this and it looks like a little.
1: But then they keep coming.
0: And then they keep coming. And you're like, no, not another one. Ken, today's show is sponsored by Shopify. Now, I know Shopify is more than a store. I know it connects you with customers. It helps you drive sales, and it helps you manage your day-to-day.
1: But, but tell me, what is Shopify? Yeah, it's not just your online storefront. Like This is all the resources that you need to run a small business. Stuff that you know, would have been beyond the grasp of a small business. Like explaining to me what my product is? Well, hopefully you already know that. Helping me develop my service. Scaling your business, reaching customers online, because it, it integrates with social media apps. Oh, that's cool. Um, synchronizing online and in-person sales. It's all the behind-the-scenes stuff, that's too. That's
0: actually important, online and in-person sales.
1: Detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, uh, and it grows with you, no matter what your business is. I mean, am I too small to use Shopify. No, it's for upstarts, startups, established businesses alike. These are the kind of tools that used to be only for the big boys, but now businesses of any size can enjoy with Shopify.
0: Can I like integrate it with other apps, third-party
1: stuff? Yes, all that is super easy. they let you accept all major payment methods. They integrate with thousands of third-party apps. So no matter what you're doing, on-demand... Printing, accounting, you want chatbots, like it's all there. So what do I do if I want to start uh, turning the power of
0: Shopify
1: to benefit me and my products? If you want to join the over 2 million businesses powered by Shopify, whether first sale or full scale, go to shopify.com slash omnibus, that's all lowercase, omnibus, for a free 14-day trial. Then you'll get full access to the whole Shopify suite of features.
0: So, you're saying if I go to Shopify today and type in shopify, S H O P I F Y dot com slash omnibus lowercase right now, I'll get a free 14 day trial?
1: Yes. Start growing your business today with Shopify. Shopify dot com slash lowercase omnibus. Karem was kind of perhaps the first
0: to talk about the very maybe not the maybe not the first um because there was some talk even vincent le had started talking about sauce as an element in uh a, i'm sorry a family of sauces in an el- as an element of french food because sauce goes back to Well, the
1: the gravy that comes off your meat. Yeah, exactly. The entrails of your
0: imagined spaghetti sauce. Thicken your cracklings, but Kareem was the first to talk about great sauces and then small sauces. Great sauces being the um, the the sauces that beget all sauces. So there are. Oh, he was doing a taxonomy of sauces. Yeah, there are a lot of sauces, Mm. and some are. It's kind of like a color wheel. There are fundamental colors, and then
1: there are blended colors. And he initially he's making an academic, a rigorous academic study of it. Like this is what defines Frenchness: is these basic ingredients and skills.
0: Yeah, right. And 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 these essential sauces reduced to their to their most fundamental. the most the, the the fundamental equation, yeah right, but it was it was a a chef that followed kadam and karem died at a young age, uh presumably because the way that they cooked during this era was to crouch over a coal fire
1: and oh. breathe in all the breathe in all the fumes. I thought he was just eating six sticks of butter a day, and that except that's that's how French women stay um. So lean. So, so svelte and uh, clear-skinned well into their 70s. All they
0: eat is clarified butter?
1: I just had a, just had a glass of red wine and three sticks of butter.
0: <laughs> and 17 cigarettes. <laughs> and I'm 119 and won't move out of my house. Uh, but his, uh, uh, not exactly protege, but um, the chef that, that, uh, that followed him in the pantheon of great French chefs, was a man by the name of Auguste Escoffier, Ooh. who was a, a, uh, another one of these characters that began in poverty uh, as a chef. He was a chef that at the age of 12, um, you know, was kind of taken out of school and slammed into apprenticeship in a, in a kitchen run by his abusive uncle who threw turnips at him. It's a fairy tale. Um it's a fairy tale. Uh this was in the south of France, France in Nice. And um he was a small man, small in stature,
1: short king. So much so bois. that he
0: uh he ended up having to he ended up kind of devising a set of lifts for his shoes just so he could actually operate in the kitchen. So you could see the top of the stove. <laughs> exactly. Hey, what's going
1: on up there? Could somebody stir that for me? <laughs> but
0: he was really good at cooking and eventually uh, left his uncle's abusive restaurant and made his way through a series of- What a weird name for a restaurant, by the way. Is it, r- abusive Come restaurant? Come on
1: down to Uncle's Abusive
0: Restaurant. It was actually called Le Restaurant Francais, but it was in Nice, <laughs> so it's like
1: the French restaurant. <laughs> Are you sick of other non-French
0: <laughs> food? This was at a time, I think, when, uh, when maybe that even would have been like, no, 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 this isn't just food. This is French food.
1: Do we have some equivalent today? Could you go to some all-American
0: burger place? Maybe. there. I bet there are those all over. I've definitely been to a restaurant in um, in England called the American Restaurant. Well,
1: yeah, overseas places always yeah. have American places.
0: With flags all over it. And you go in and, and you have a hamburger in it and it tastes like it's half pork it's, and then the milkshake is super runny. Why is this burger made of meatloaf? And this just feels like a strawberry quick. <laughs> Uh, but eventually he made his way to Le Petit Moulin Rouge in Paris. Which is a foodie destination, I guess. Uh, fu- at the time. And he was, and this is, he's still pretty young. And um, and then he gets drafted. And gets drafted mm. into the Franco-Prussian War, which is the thing that I'm always
1: trying to connect all things to.
0: Well, Escoffier was not. He did not
1: want to connect things to the Franco-Prussian War. I well,
0: but what Escoffier did in the Franco-Prussian War, and he and he was a cook there uh, for um, for the period of the war, what he developed when he returned to cooking was an idea of military precision mm. and a very clear rank structure to the way kitchens are run. When we think of the classic kitchen with the chef de cuisine at the top. Yes, chef. Uh, and run in a, you know, in a, in a hyper clean and, and abusively <laughs> um, hierarchical kind of uh, uh, system yeah. that was invented by Escoffier and he brought it back from his time in the military. Wow. Um, so, you know, and, and the ranking of, um, uh, in a scoffier style, uh, style design, you know, at the top, you have the chef de cuisine, which just means the chief of the kitchen. Chef just means chief. Yes, chef. We oui, chef. And then under the chef de cuisine is the sous chef, which just means under chef. Yeah. It's well, not like a soup chef. No. It's an under chef. It's like chef. sous vide. Yeah, I get it. And then under that is the saucier, and then the various...
1: You know, the... Socier third. Yeah, the chef de partie. If something were to happen to the chef and sous chef, some terrible accident, but the when, saussure would have to take over.
0: When you look at his brigade de cuisine design, there it actually encompasses... I mean, there are 40 different special <laughs> roles, right? And we think of them now as somewhat separated out, the patisserie or, and the butcher and so forth. But yeah. he would have had them all in this, in this hierarchy within you know, a true kitchen of its time. Um, But he then runs into, in, down in the south of France, um a man by the name of Cesar Ritz.
1: Ah, of hotel fame? And Cesar Ritz Or is, crackers fame?
0: He's also, it's not the cracker, it's the hotel, although the cracker is derived, I think, from Cesar Ritz in the sense that Ritz became- Synonymous with um, the highest, ritziest class yes. of things. Yeah. But Caesar Ritz was born into poverty in Switzerland. Uh, he was the youngest of 13 kids. And he began his career, um, again, just kind of.
1: He just wanted to get out. He's the youngest of 13 kids.
0: Yeah, he was, you know, he, he ended up in restaurants just by, just in this sense of like, well, we have to put these young people to work at some point. And he was, working as a waiter, he was told repeatedly that he had no talent for working in restaurants, service was an honorable profession, and he should find something else to do because he was klutzy and just didn't get the vibe but he refused to take no for an answer and um and continued kind of uh working at primarily as a waiter um until he kind of got the he got the routine of it and then ended up working at the hotel splendide in paris as a waiter which was this is in the 1870s it was kind of the the uh, the first wave of like truly rich Americans traveling the world after the Civil War, industrial scions that yeah. were making that trip back to the old country. Doddsworth types. And, s- and so you had a lot of rich um, nouveau riche yeah. who had the money and were, and there was like this burgeoning spa culture. The south of France was where this rich um, intelligentsia kind of went to overwinter. And then in the summer, they would go up to the spas in Switzerland and in Germany and Czech Republic. You
1: have to go places to take the waters. You take the waters. It's something we don't do much anymore. You eat. I, uh, I rarely
0: vacation for the waters. Now think about it. When was the last time you went? You go to Hawaii and that's basically for the waters.
1: I guess the tap water in Manhattan is really good. You don't have mm-hmm. to get bottled there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to the I'm going to Park Slope for the waters mm-hmm, for the waters for
0: the delicious waters of the uh, of, uh, of the men's room uh, yeah or of the uh, yeah the delicious uh, spa uh, the the healing waters of the Gowanus Canal
1: yeah I love the Superfund waters mm.
0: uh, but then as a waiter he and as a waiter in these uh, in these prestigious restaurants uh, part of this spa circle and as a Swiss he ends up being promoted to being a hotel manager uh, first in Nice. And then he does a, he's just, he, en- he ends up defying his, uh, his bad mouthers and becomes a, um, and actually a, a great kind of matre de hotel.
1: Um, it's a real inspirational story. He's the man. Drivers all the out there who are he- told by their teacher, they can't do it because of their, uh, What? weird. Yeah. They're, they're neurotypical, whatever
0: their clutziness and their inability to carry a tray full of glasses. But he was the one that instituted the, uh, instituted the maxim of the customer is always right. He's, he was the first hotel manager to say, if somebody doesn't like it, take it away and bring them another one without any argument without, you know, this is, this is what luxury truly is. He created Karens. He did. He did. If you don't like the wine, we'll replace it with a different wine. And he was the first one, you know, hotels had prior been kind of over ornately decorated, big, you know, heavy damask and wallpaper. And he was the first to to his modern style, clean, Mm. painted, um, antiseptic even spaces. No brocade. No brocade. To offend the eye. Big windows, lots of fresh air and ritz and escoffier uh met in the in the kitchens and spas of this era of of uh, well-to-do europe and they teamed up and escoffier became the uh became the chef and as a partnership they went to the savoy hotel in london and introduced this style, es- uh, es- Escoffier's style of French cooking to the British. They're entrepreneurs now. They're looking to expand yeah. overseas. And they were, and it was it was an enormous success, Escoffier and Ritz. It was a combined experience, right? You went to the Ritz Hotel for this kind of luxury, but the luxury was, was
1: also in the food. Because you're not eating stewed tomatoes and mash or whatever else they were. They, they made- Your other options.
0: You know, they made huge- uh, uh, like all the all the celebrities were super fans. Um, this was where Escoffier actually invented Peach Melba and Melba Toast in honor of the famous, and you, you may not believe this, the famous Australian opera star. My favorite Australian opera star. The biggest star, the biggest Australian star at the time, Nellie Melba, who named herself Melba after her hometown of Melbourne. Oh, I didn't know that. So, Peach Melba was in her honor. Um, The
1: only fancy food that will ever be named after an Australian city.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, you're not counting the ACDC uh, (laughs) filet. But so, Escoffier uh, was, he was known, he he was described by, um, he was described by Wilhelm, emperor uh, of the Germans, as the emperor of chefs. And became kind of – and and he and Ritz went through a series of hotels together. Um, at a certain point, the owners of the Savoy Hotel realized that Escoffier and Ritz were ripping them off <laughs> by like padding their account books and they then they sacked them. Um, but rather than be the end of their careers, they went and started the Carlton Hotel Uh, later to be known as the Ritz Carlton.
1: Wait, Ritz started the Carlton hotel. He did. It's crazy.
0: And then, uh, and then went on to develop a whole chain of Ritz hotels. And when they were sacked by the Savoy, all of their celebrity and wealthy, uh, patrons followed them to their new locations. So although the sense is that they were super guilty of the charges, uh they took they took their reputation and started their own they were the brand church but it was Escoffier, and and actually when ritz got old and and um he retired and and kind of died maybe not young but but before he was 70 Escoffier took over management of the ritz and was his his um i guess you know not just the chef but like true partner in the in the idea of the luxury hotel so he is wolfgang pucky he is the one who sold out but in in 1903 he wrote le guide culinaire which was a, a a further extension of the modern cook and the art of french cuisine um and was you know describing now what would be truly modern french cooking away from the Marzipan Castle, um, you know, served in the Russian
1: style. Is it kind of stripped down like his hotels? It's a lot more, here, here are the three ingredients you can taste?
0: That's right. It, Less the, frou-frou? You know, uh, 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 small plates that have just the right elements rather than mm. being like meant to wow. Instead, they were, you know, the only
1: the freshest and
0: rarest kind of, you know, seasonings
1: from afar. And the technique is perfect, right? This isn't fancy because it's hummingbird. It's fancy because this is the moistest chicken you've ever had, right. or that kind of thing. And in his Le
0: Guide Culinaire, he outlines, um, the, he, he furthers upon the the Karem's identification of there being great and small sauces. And he recognizes or codifies that there are five mother sauces
1: from which follow all other sauce. This this must only be true of French cuisine, right? I assume he doesn't have like Vietnamese fish sauce uh, or chimichurri on his list, right? He does
0: not have... No moles. He does not have moles for obvious reasons, (laughs) because chocolate does not belong on food. What
1: about a choco taco?
0: A choco taco. (laughs) A choco taco is a separate thing altogether. But he he brings these five sauces out of the mists of time. The first of the five mother sauces is Bechamel
1: sauce. It's not just like a that's a white sauce, right? It's like flour and milk. No, what is bechamel?
0: Well it is. It's um so three out of the five mother sauces really begin with a roux. And a roux is just flour and fat. Um, cooked so that the flour doesn't taste like raw flour anymore, and you, you can make a roux kind of three different ways. You know, you can make a roux an infinite number of ways, but the three basic roux are a white roux, which is just butter. In the French, you know, it, the French use butter as their fat. Yeah. Uh, other other nationalities use oil or lard or lard. But and, Or, you know, or or rendered bacon, you know, the fat from cooking bacon. Mm. But the French preferred butter. And the, the three roux are a white roux, which is just, you know, cooked on a low enough temperature and just long enough that it, that the flour cook without browning. Then there's the blonde roux, which is where the flour has cooked, you know, long enough and over proper heat to. It's browned. It's right? a little, you know, it's, it's, um a creme colored or it's, you know, it's blonde colored. And then there are darker roux, um, that are all in the family, although brown roux, but there are roux,
1: you know, you can cook it all the way until. It's just the same split. stuff. It's just how long you cook it. It's so, just how you, toasty tasting it is.
0: But the roux, the different roux are the different components in these sauces. And bechamel uses white roux, just flour and butter cooked in a, uh, you know, in a into a white sauce that's then sort of lightly seasoned and used both as a sauce of its own and also
1: a mother sauce of daughter sauces. That means you could you, what well, you could add an ingredient. It's this with cheese. It's this with spinach or or whatever. That's right. It, I mean, if you think about
0: macaroni and cheese, yeah,
1: it's just yeah, a, a, yeah. it's
0: just a bechamel that's used uh, that that's filled with cheese. That's called a mornay sauce. So all the all the the sauces that are bechamel then with with any kind of dairy in them are in a family of daughter sauces called the mornay sauces. And there's a, uh, I think a general consensus that that kind of uh, the the bechamel sauce actually was a Tuscan sauce that came to France. It's Italian. Either that's right, Italian sauce that came to France either. Through Catherine de Medici, all the way back in the 1500s, or uh, in the 1700s, kind of, I, the suggestion is that um, that bechamel came from it was just a description of the fashionable masks that. High society women wore at the time that were just made out of flour and water paste. You know the kind, mm. not a not a like paper mache. A, yeah, not a mask, but like a like a, a a style of makeup to have that perfect white circle. And somebody accidentally took a bite and thought this would be good mm. with some cheese. In it. it was called a balsamo, the the mask, and so perhaps that gave its name to Bechamel.
1: So some of these French core sauces are imports. We will see. Mm.
0: The the second of the five core sauces is actually called Espanol.
1: Well, that one's got to be an import. What is? I don't know what that is. What's in sauce Espanol?
0: Well, Espanol is it starts with a dark roux, and but it is combined with a uh, with meat stock. So, oh. so a beef stock or a pork stock. Uh, it's cooked. You know, with a with sort of a reduction of vegetables and brown sugar, and then its key, a Spanish addition, is the addition of tomato paste. Mm. And tomato paste, um, was a, you know, was an import to Spain from the Americas. But the tomato is kind of a thickening agent within the espanol, and. It should be said all these roux are there to thicken the sauce to, to give it depth of flavor but also to make it not just a water a watery sauce like a
1: like a stock would be but a sauce that has some substance to it I guess I've had like you know meat with this kind of demi-glace or or bourguignon thing on it I can kind of imagine how this tastes
0: So an espagnole sauce came in to French cuisine. Uh again, kind of arguable where it it uh you know, how it first entered French cuisine, but the suggestion was that Louis Tres, uh married Anne of the what would have been the House of Habsburg at the time, who was born and raised in Spain because her mother had married the Spanish king. And so when she came she was, you know, part of an Austrian royal family, but, but raised in Spain. And so when she married Louis XIII, she brought tomatoes and Span- she brought her Spanish chef with her to the French court and introduced the idea of this sort of tomato, uh, tomato in a dark sauce. And it became, you know, enormously popular in the court at the time. And that was the the introduction of espagnole as one of the the primary sauces. And espagnole is the sauce that that from which so many daughter sauces are derived. If you think about uh, beef bourguignon, yeah, that's derived from this espagnole. Um, all the kind of sauces that you get on a schnitzel in Germany, sauce au champignon. Sauce oh, mushroom, uh, mushrooms, right? Yeah, yeah. The kind of um, hunter sauces that are just basically um, a, a, like a dark roux with with various yeah. addition, um, but also you add a little orange to it and it becomes duck au orange.
1: Hmm. So it's, it's funny to think of a time when food is so basic that. Um, that, uh like, people are wowed by the idea of putting a little meat stock and tomatoes on something.
0: Yeah. I've never had this before. Like, what the what? But yeah. if you think about it, what this book is doing is trying to explain to chefs everywhere, you need to know how to make these five sauces. And if you can, if you can successfully make these five sauces, you can make 50 sauces. You can make every kind of food we know about. It's before... There was a place outside of, um, 600 miles from France. So as you say, there wouldn't have been any, uh, there wouldn't have been any soy in the equation, but at the time this would, I mean, in a, in any courtly hotel or spa or, uh, or rich person's dining room, this would have been, these five sauces would have been all you needed. Because they go eat each sauce has a meat that it prefers or meats that it prefers. The third of the key sauces was wait for it, tomato sauce. <laughs> now, have you guys tried this tomato being a, a a recent and kind of exciting addition to European cuisine? It was it only came back well, duh. It came with the Spanish, um, and again, I mean, this is the third of the five sauces.
1: Is this some particular kind? Is this indistinguishable from what might be in a can of tomato sauce today? Initially, yeah, tomato Smash sauce, tomatoes with some I don't know, salt and sugar.
0: Tomato sauce being just the sauce of tomatoes. The first reference to tomato sauce was um, a Franciscan friar in the in the late fifteen hundreds had been to Tenochtitlan. Mm-hmm. And had seen sauce for sale in the market
1: that was made out of tomatoes and peppers. and He went to some early taco truck? Yeah, and he was like, whoa, this stuff, you got to check it out. Do you want mild or medium, sir? Wait, you're a conquistador. Let's give you mild.
0: But y- Europeans were slow to to know quite what to do with it. The first, um, the first mention of tomato sauce in Italy was not until the 1690s, so 100 years
1: later. Yeah, when you think about Italians inventing pizza or whatever, they used to just put olive oil on. Like tomato sauce wasn't a big you know, they they were eating pasta and flatbread long before they had tomato to put on it.
0: Yeah, and and the the introduction to Italian cuisine came as a result of the Spanish viceroy to Italy (laughs) requesting that his Italian chef make some tomato-based sauces for him. And the Italians were like, say. What have we here? But the idea of pasta with tomatoes—the <laughs> first mention of pasta with a tomato sauce—isn't until a hundred years after that. <laughs> Seventeen ninety was the first. America's older than spaghetti and meatballs. But the French version of tomato sauce was made with, uh, rather than with butter, with a reduction of pork, pork belly fat. Hmm and then cooked with onion and bay leaves and thyme and garlic and so that's, sugar. That's a
1: very specific kind of culinary tomato sauce, not just a can you would open today. Yeah, it's a it's
0: a, and it's the mother sauce of bolognese.
1: Hmm.
0: Um which somehow caught its uh caught the Italian in it.
1: Uh but again, and- do you think that's reverse engineered like this is the ba- this is the basis for what the Italians call bolognese or do, or do you think did bolognese actually derive from this original simpler sauce?
0: The the two you know the two worlds are so interconnected with one another. <laughs> um, I think the idea of bolognese on pasta. You know the Italians were throwing pasta around as they still do now out of a cannon, the famous Italian pasta cannon. Hey,
1: yeah, try to go to a soccer game, you just get a face full of pasta. It's the worst.
0: The fourth of the five sauces is veloute which is french for or velouté i guess as the french would say velouté which is just the word for velvety
1: what's in velouté
0: well velouté is um is a blonde roux that's just prepared with clear stock oh, there's that buzz it's gone it's prepared with clear stock, and it's basically a fish that is used – I'm sorry. It's basically a sauce that's used with fish. Fish and chicken. You're thinking of a white sauce that you might find, um, you know, like a wine sauce on chicken. Yeah. You know, you're not going to put a white wine sauce on beef. Right. But you do put it on chicken and fish. Uh, you add a little cream to it, and it becomes – a supreme. Um, if you put, you know, there. Uh, if you put egg yolk in it, it's a very common sauce. Uh, egg yolk and lemon in a cream sauce made from, made from a clear stock. But it's actually the, f- it's actually the forerunner, or it's the, it's the mother sauce, uh, from which the daughter sauce gravy comes from. If you think about. The gravy that we put on a turkey dinner—it's
1: yeah, just meat dripping, thickened with flour. I yeah, guess, it's so. the,
0: it's the clear stock. Most most um, meat stocks are made from boiling the the bones that were part of a roast. Yeah, and this is this. Sometimes gravy, we do that at our house
1: when we're done with a Costco roasted chicken. You put it in, and sometimes and make your own sauce, make some chicken sauce.
0: The classic uh, veloute is made from unroasted bones, so just the chicken bones, kind of cooked in their own cooked cooked before being roasted. Hmm. But of course, the American style we don't use a we don't use a white roux. We use and often, like, I'll brown the living daylights out
1: of a roux in yeah, order to make a turkey. You'd think you would want it roasted. Yeah. I don't want to tell the French how to how to serve their fish. No, sir, you do not. They'll get angry. But the final of
0: the five, and if you recall, um, Karim only had four great sauces from which were derived all the small sauces. Does that mean that there's a new modern one? the The fifth sauce— Is Hollandaise sauce, Mm. which is in French, just Dutch sauce?
1: Is it? Oh, yeah, right from Holland. Is that actually where it comes from?
0: Well, the you know it kind of initially um, was brought back to France by the Huguenot ex exiles who had been exiled to uh, uh, exiled to Holland in the in the You know, the war of, you hear about Dutch sauce, people who are writing about Dutch sauce earlier, but it's the, it's the, the first recipe for Dutch sauce is written down in 1650s. And it's initially, even at the very uh, start, described as a sauce to be put on asparagus. That's what you still use it for today, right? That's right. Doesn't
1: asparagus often have hollandaise on it? It does.
0: Mm-hmm. And it is a sauce without a roux.
1: So this is... Oh, right. It's got egg thickening in it, it's right? It's
0: egg yolk and butter and
1: then lemon and salt and pepper in its basic form. I mean, that's still what it is on Eggs Benedict today. hmm And... I feel like that's the only one of the five that I've ever just eaten and been like, yep, I know exactly what this is and what to serve it on. What's curious about hollandaise,
0: although it is a Dutch sauce... It's really um, – and and Karem, and I think a lot of chefs would have made Hollandaise, rather than a mother sauce, a daughter sauce of
1: mayonnaise, which is – I guess mayonnaise is kind of similar. Just what? oil, egg, yolk, it's, and vinegar. Yeah, it's still emulsified egg. It's, mm-hmm. Oh, it's got vinegar in it. It's got vinegar and or it, lemon. Vinegar or lemon. Lemon's usually in Hollandaise. Um, so
0: mayonnaise – actually gets its name from uh, the city of Matan, which is the capital of Majorca. No, not Majorca, Menorca. It's the capital of the
1: smaller sp- island next to Majorca. Spanish island? Is, I mean, it's true that you eat mayonnaise with a lot of Spanish food. A lot of tapas have a mayo-based sauce.
0: Yeah, and all of these Take are- Take that,
1: mayonnaise is for white people, complainers.
0: They're somewhat derived from an ancient sauce, which is just vinaigrette. It's yeah. just oil and vinegar. Um the the kind of mixing it up, adding lemon, kind of getting the the creaminess of it rather than leaving it in its oil and vinegar state um was brought back to France, France in the 1750s because the Duke de Richelieu conquered Menorca and loved the local cuisine. So brought it back and uh and then connected it, connected mayonnaise with the sauce that had been brought from Holland. And I guess its its purest French form is Hollandaise rather than mayonnaise, which we can credit again to Spain. Spain is in all its many forms.
1: And we can credit Miracle Whip to America. I wonder how it seems like this is not, there's, you know, even though this is kind of a taxonomy, it's not really an attempt to show all that can be done with sauce. It's really just for food to seem like what is French food to us. Here are the kinds of roots it comes from. Cause this is not an exhaustive list of sauces at all, but it's an exhaustive list of what makes for French food, I guess.
0: Most of the sauces that come, most of the sauces that you would get in haute cuisine are, uh, at their in their elemental form, one of these five sauces, béarnaise sauce, comes from Hollandaise. Mm. Like you take these basic concepts and then add garlic here, capers there. You mash up some
1: gherkins and throw it in, and you've got tartar sauce. But I think it also shows the limitations of their of their ingredients and their culture at the time.
0: Yeah, well, you wouldn't have had soybeans, right? Um, you wouldn't have had uh, like I feel like fish sauce, the the um, the cleverness of fish sauce is that you let it m- right. rot. <laughs> right, it's, it's
1: Worcestershire sauce. It's the same principle, right? Yeah. Um, but but there, you know, uh, but we have other common sauces that are not just different based on ingredients, but just based on techniques. You know, a bunch of chopped herbs um, suspended in oil. You know, that's not an option here for one of these French sauces, but that's a super common thing to put on steak today. Chopped, uh, chopped herbs in oil. Yeah, like a chimichurri kind of a sauce. You know, where, where parsley in oil is kind of the bulk of the sauce. There's no, there's no roux. There's no,
0: but it's 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 foreshadowed by vinaigrette. I mean, all of those are that's basically true. any herbs chopped up in a in an oil and vinegar is kind of a.
1: That's true. I guess vinaigrette is the ancestor of it's. The, it's one of the grandmother sauces. Yeah, a gra- that's right. Maybe the grandmother sauce.
0: Um but yeah I mean all of these or most of these sauces rely on your food having a flour uh, being part of a flour economy we- there's so there are so many uh so many cultures of the world that don't use flour as their primary starch, but those are the you know the if you think about the food that we think of as American food, the stews and gravies that although I don't eat French food except when I go to Le Pichet to see how my money's doing, Uh, I put gravy or cheese sauce or spaghetti sauce
1: on six out of five meals. Not just for Frenchmen anymore. And that concludes The Mother Sauces. Entry 810.PS7825, certificate number 48504, in the omnibus. Just to review really quickly, John and I were in our day at The Omnibus Project on social media. We had TheOmnibusProject at gmail.com as an email address, if you remember what that was. You can mail us things to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington 98155. Uh, a listener named Taco wants us to know that uh, this week was World Turtle Day. In fact, that was my birthday. World Turtle Day is your birthday? Yeah, and what some weird, whatever my weird version of Windows had a picture of a turtle pop up in the taskbar. And I guess that's because it was World Turtle Day.
0: And uh, Taco presumably not named after
1: one of the French sauces. <laughs> no. And may, maybe named after the European musician. Who knows? Oh, mm-hmm. um, so it wanted us to... There's a couple um, turtle puns here. Go on.
0: No, you don't. I'm here for, for the turtle puns. Well, I don't want you to experience the joy of a pun without sharing it with me.
1: Wishing you a Plastronomical World Turtle Day. This is a, a pun that hinges on knowing what part of the shell the plastron is. Hope you have a shell of a time. Hell, I have to think. I guess. Maybe you should say, hope you shall have a good time. That's That, that would be my note. But remember to carapace yourselves. Okay. Be careful. Because turtles have beaks. Do, I mean, would you call a turtle shell a carapace?
0: I think of that as an insectoid
1: the, word. A turtle shell has two parts, I believe. The plastron above and the carapace beneath. Oh, the carapace is Unless beneath. I just got it backwards. Oh, it's the other way around. Carapace above, plastron beneath. Okay. Because if the day gets too special, shell, mm. so reusing words in the second pun, it could become a turtle disaster. From the turtle cloacquially known as Taco. That was um, all good attempts. That was awful. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but I don't like puns, so but the, that's... But the postcards love it.
0: Did Taco come up with all those himself?
1: I would have to imagine. Huh. I don't know where you would go to have somebody write um, attempts at turtle puns for you. Well, in that case,
0: I give it three and a half out of five stars.
1: He taught us a few things about turtle puns today. L- lame. So please send us um, reptile puns at your convenience. You can also uh, well send us uh, send us your recipes. Send us your sauce recipes.
0: Yeah, I have only just recently started making sauce in earnest myself, um, and it, I love it. I'm making sauces all the time. You're a socie. I am. When you came over for dinner last, I had stew, didn't I? It's true Beef
1: stew. You're, you're counting that as a sauce. Well, I mean, it's got a roux. It's got a roux. <laughs> it's got a roux. I can't deny it. Um, look for f- look for uh, fellow uh, listeners by looking for the Futurelings online.
0: I should say that that uh, that yeah, stew is part of the Espanol family of sauces.
1: It's true. It's got meat sauce thickening the roux. It's a dark roux. Mm-hmm. Got it got m- a it can might have of to- tomato. Paste. Might have tomato. Yeah. Um, the blah, 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 Facebook, Patreon, of course, is the most important destination. Let me just take a moment and say that it would really uh, continue the longevity of the show if those of you whose budget allows were to become subscribers and enjoy the monthly addenda show, among other things. Right now, John, and I are about to record the one that you heard two months ago. Uh Uh-huh. Enjoy the time travel. Maybe we'll talk about sauces again. Maybe we did talk about sauces.
0: Yeah, you know how I am. I always like to refer to uh, episodes
1: far in the future. John is a time traveler.
0: Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, we wish you many goods and cheese.
1: During the aftermath. That would be a Mornay sauce if, we, you, if you add goods and cheese uh-huh. to, a, to a bechamel. Uh,
0: this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the on.